Are we there yet? That's a universal experience. How much longer? When will we get there? Have you ever wondered why it takes so long to get where sometimes you want to be? Whether it's individually, whether it's in your marriage relationship, whether it's in a relationship with someone that you have in family, whatever way it is business, whatever it is. Have you ever wondered why sometimes it takes so long to get where you want to be? Whether it's waiting to reach four feet, two inches to ride the roller coaster. Or age 16 to drive. Or to um, find that companion that your heart longs for. Or after college, you get that first job. Or you've waited and been passed by for that promotion. Or maybe you're waiting to retire, or maybe you're waiting for grandchildren. But when will we ever get there? I love the fact that God uses growth as a result of a process. And we sometimes forget the process is is important to God. In fact, many times more so than the promise of the end. Some of the richest relational experiences that I've ever had have occurred on the way of getting to somewhere. Road trips. Some of my favorite memories as a child and my favorite memories as a parent have been with my children on family vacation or on road trips. Somewhere along the way, deep connections occur. Somewhere along the way, we're all laughing. Somewhere along the way, we're all fighting. Lines are drawn. I remember my father often saying, we're going to turn the car around here. Now. We were in California. We're not going to go into the ocean. But anyway, <laughs> somewhere along the way, quality time happens because quality time is an accident of quantity time. And in that process, God is doing something in our togetherness, which he is doing right now in our body. God uses the way to something to bring about maturity and character and growth. And often it is the process that God prepares people for the promise. He did the same with the children of Israel when Moses took the people out of Egypt and he gathered these people, these children of Israel, they were called, because they were children who were supposed to become adults. And he took them on a long road trip. Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 18, I think are very interesting because it says when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them. Look at that. God did not lead them on the road to the Philistine country. That was, though that was shorter They all knew it when they were passing the shortcut. They're looking like, what's this guy leading us? What's Moses doing? Who in the world is he listening to? And he brings them right to a sea. And right behind them, they hear the hoofbeats of horses right on their tail. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Isn't that an interesting statement? So God led the people, not Moses, God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Instead of the shortcut, God took them on the long cut. For a purpose and a reason, and I think sometimes he does that in our case individually. He sometimes does that in marriages and families. He does it in churches. He does it in people's lives. Because God prepares people. 
He has to teach them the deep things of trust. He has to build character through difficulty, through forgiveness, through all kinds of those relational expressions of health. He actually tests resolve of his people. Will they stay in it? Will they be with me? And will they be with one another? Will they put me first above everything? And when things happen, rather than going to one another, will they go to me? Will they seek me with all their heart? Will they recognize that, that I, God alone, would provide for their deepest needs? And God was preparing for this people as they walked through a wilderness. He intended to do through them something great. But that something great couldn't happen because he couldn't take them on a shortcut. They weren't prepared for it. They would never go into that land. They would go back to where they were. And God was more concerned about who they would be, really, than even what they would achieve. Because it's out of who you are. It is always out of well-being that well-doing flows. We always get it backwards. I get it backwards. I somehow think if I do a whole lot of good things, that'll make a difference. It does make a difference. But nothing has the impact out of that which flows out of your well-being, which is right before God in a relationship with one another. And from it comes His power and impact. And the promise to come depended on the people they would become. Moses and the children of Israel had to walk through the wilderness so they could enter a promised land. God was forming a people so that he could fulfill his promise. And he still does that today. He's doing that in your life. He's doing that in my life. The Christian life is never something where you just sit still. It's, it's like riding a bike. You've always got to keep... Moving, it's about balance and direction and continually moving, and God will keep us in that path. God does that. Our vision is the promise to come, and it depends, I really believe, on the choices we make and who we become. And the process we are in is what shapes us and prepares us. And what we decide in these days will make a difference in the years to come. The guts of our vision come from the words of Jesus, where he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And then he said, there's also something with it. And the second is like it. There's so much interwoven together. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the law, the Old Testament law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. I'm going to ask us to stand together again. I want us to read our vision. I say our vision because I pray it's our vision. And I pray as we read it, we will again see and, and, and we'll discuss this in a moment. Our vision to be, let's say it together, a multi-generational church growing in our love of God and people, relevantly engaged as followers of Jesus in our local community and throughout the world. Thank you. You may be seated. Our vision holds within it, as I said last week, and I encourage you again to get that last week, three tensions. And tensions are often a good thing. They're not always so bad. The first two I want to address are really unique to our vision statement. The other one I said, the third, which will be very short this morning, is something that is, is characteristic of all vision statements. And the first tension is this. We say in this statement to be multi-general and we and generational and we, we box it in on the other end, yet relevantly engaged. In the heart of it, in the center of it, is tension number two, to love God and to love others. It's really a pretty simple vision. Those are the key elements. As followers of Jesus, we'll be multi-generational, yet relevantly engaged. 
loving God and loving others as we follow Jesus in our community and throughout the world. Our vision isn't about size that will become. It's not about grandiosity. It's about a way of being together. It's about a way of becoming. It's about a preparation that I believe as we become that leads to influence and impact that we don't even at this point understand fully what God will do because it will come out of the hearts and dreams of people that are here and those that God leads to this body. And so I just tell you, pay attention to what God's stirring in your soul. Go after it. It's not about what's here. It's about what God is doing in you for others. It's about a preparation that leads the impact. It's about maturity. It's about becoming loving people. And the tensions force us to grow. And these tensions are found throughout the wilderness experience of the people of Israel when they walked with Moses. And it was a process that was continually shaping them. So I want us to look at the first tension. Tension number one. Our vision is to be multi-generational and yet relevantly engaged in our community and world. To be both multi-generational and relevantly engaged in our world is no easy task. It calls for living in such a way that this is the standard, the base, the foundation of all we do. And not the Bible alone. It's the relationship we have through Jesus, that living word in us that is informed by God's very word. And yet, it calls for us to do that in a multi-generational way, in a way that we're engaged in our culture where it's meaningful and it touches hearts and lives of people. And when you think of this, it's no easy task. The futurists that I read last week, some of you remember when I read Vision 2020, of what things would be, all state this. They say one thing is certain in the next like nine to twenty five years. The rapid change that we have seen since the 1980s will not slow down. It will speed up so much that in some ways our lives in 2030 will be unrecognizable today. Former CEO Jack Welsh of GE states it this way. If the rate of change internally is slower than the rate of change externally, the end is in sight. That's just an organizational principle. To be multi-generational and relevantly engaged in a world requires change. In fact, as I change and as I age, I mean, I find that change is difficult in my life in so many areas. I mean, every day I get older, I find it's more difficult. I find physical flexibility to be a challenge with every day I age. Anybody else found that? I am stiff and sore in ways I never imagined before, and now even more so. In fact, today, over the last about like five, six weeks, I am a walking ache daily. I did this silly thing where I decided I would, with my daughter and my wife, do this thing called P90X. And some of you know what that is. It's just this intensive training, and uh, I'm feeling... But anyway... um. <laughs> oh, you guys. I'm amazed, though, how inflexible my body is. And now, with all the new technology going on around us, and I think of all the new ways of, of thinking and things that are going on, I wonder if we don't need, I've been thinking, an M90X, something mentally. See, staying physically and mentally and then spiritually flexible is key to, hope, to our hope of reaching this culture. Multi-generational. Think about it. And relevantly engaged. 
God has created this tension purposely. I believe it's to be together and to be together even in forms such as this. Because what it does is it causes us each to have to stretch. It causes for flexibility spiritually like you would never imagine. And it's for this reason that in our vision statement, they have two desired outcomes. And our desire is to do multi-generational stuff in leadership, in worship, and in where we serve. I just heard great reports at 9 o'clock of what happened in Poland from, from, from some of the younger children of some parents of how God had used them. And in fact, if they weren't there, they couldn't have reached some of the people they reached. To be a multi-generational calls then for multi-complexity. It requires great savvy and it requires humble maturity. If we're going to combine generations. And I believe this is the very thing God wants for us. Because the cultures of each generation are different. I had a whole list of things that we could go into, but I'm not going to. A lot of times churches don't even attempt this, but you know what? They are beginning to attempt this more and more. Off you st- the stuff you read in, in, all the, in all the stuff that's happening around our country is there are churches all over the place coming together in multi-generational ways, even in multi-generational worship, because they recognize how important the generations are together. And it is really interesting, this younger generation wants the connection because they've come from such a fractured place through divorce and all the other things that occurred. They've come from a fractured place because they don't grow up a block down from grandpa and grandma. And we as older, and I use myself as older because Paul, Pastor Paul, who's about 88 years of age, looks at me as, as young, but I feel older when I look at some of the people around, right? Need each other. We need each other. And everyone has a place and a purpose. And in fact, one time church growth taught against us, but now they're beginning to change their tune. The Bible teaches this intergenerational interaction, not as something to endure, like, oh, I've got to endure this, but as something to celebrate and encourages it. Listen to the last words, the last words of the final chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. Isn't it interesting? The Old Testament would end with these words. He which is a prophet God sends, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Isn't that an interesting thing to end a book with? He's going to somehow bring together father and children in, in, in these generations, and if they don't... In the 1960s, there was a breach, a generational divide, and I believe that God is in the process right now, one generation or so later, beginning to repair that, and we have a part to play. I think the spiritual ramifications of this are things we don't even understand and can't even comprehend if we were to know the mind of Christ and see into this realm of the Spirit. The reason we envision a multi-generationally led church that's relevantly engaged in leadership, worship, and service is because what God can potentially do through this kind of community that interacts together, works together, processes together, walks together, loves one another, says I'm sorry, works together, laughs together, fights together, comes together to be something they could never be without one another. And when we become that, God does something through us. Each generation brings about growth. 
that keeps us the old, young, and yet creates maturity in us, the young. I took both places there. Psalm 71. It's an older person's psalm. I'm just going to read two verses from it. It reflects on the life of a person in a time of trial. And it was a time when he was asking God to deliver him. He was obviously a person who had grown up in a younger generation. And in that younger generation came to know his father and knew his God. And as he walked with this God, this God showed up to him in times of great crisis where he found God's power, his right arm, which is his kingdom power, available for him. It gave him hope. It gave him strength. It developed his character. And it allowed for him to make an impact. And he's praying in verse 17, that as a part of this older generation, he might have an impact on the younger generation. Verse 18 says, even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. And what I find is really interesting in the day and age, what can happen as we grow older? Some of us, our message as we look at things unraveling around us the way we think they should be. It becomes gloom and doom. And we send out a message that I think is just destroying a culture of younger people who need a message of people who say, I've seen God work in my life. And even if this culture, even if this land goes in a direction we don't want, we have a God who is greater, more powerful. He is a God who gives you hope. What kind of message can you have in communist China under suffering? It's about a God who is present for you. And we may go into times of suffering, but man, we have a responsibility. Those of us who are older, like this psalmist here, who cries out to God, God, can I be engaged in relationship, mentoring those who are younger, not telling them necessarily what to do, but telling them about the experiences of God in my life so they can begin to translate those stories into their own life. The younger generation is hungry for that. And he desires to declare God's right arm. And I believe generational fumbles are our formational failures. We fail to hand that ball off. The older ones have seen things the younger ones need to see through past experience and memories. The younger ones have fresh eyes that can see in ways the older ones can't. When you were young, most of you, I would guess, didn't wear glasses or need them to see far away, right? You see, when you're younger, you have an ability, especially in cultural settings, to be able to understand, be able to see more clearly the way that God can use the things that are out there that we don't understand, that we don't get, and those forms and those mediums. Not changing the Word of God, not changing the message of God, not in any way moving away from the Gospel, but using those kind of things that we don't quite fully understand, but they do to engage not just their generation, but the world. They have this kind of ability. Here's where the younger can make a difference in the older's life. Yes, it'll cause you to stretch. The Old Testament prophet Joel said this, and it was reiterated by Peter in Acts. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men and your young women will see visions. They're going to see things that you might not be able to see. They're going to stretch you in ways that you don't feel comfortable being stretched. But it isn't about doctrinal stuff. It isn't about biblical stuff. It's really about learning how to come around them and to, and to begin to stretch. And even though if you can't, you know what, when, when I do this, this, some of this stretching stuff, you know, they, I can get maybe like here. I'm, I'm, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this on the tape, I'm, or, I'm sorry. But anyway, it's not a great vision to see anyway. 
But there are some people, they can stretch, I mean, like pretzels. They always just say, do the best and, and forget the rest. This kind of idea that, you know what, you just give your best, and as you do it over time, you'll stretch, and you'll become more flexible in these areas that you're being called to be flexible in. I found something very interesting year, a number of years ago when I was going through this whole process. And honestly, I was going through a process where I was saying, you know, God, I grew up with hymns, and I really love these hymns, and I was in this church experience where I was beginning to pray about, do we, how do we include these choruses? What do we do with these choruses? And I, and I was struggling with what should we do about this whole thing. And, and I remember thinking, you know, my kids aren't going to grow up with some of the hymns that I grew up with. You know, the ones that are standard, that make it through all time, they're going to come through, and there will be even some added. And I was just struggling with that, and, and I began to see other people struggling. I felt their pain and their hurt. And it was around that time I'm reading in my quiet times the book of Hebrews. And I began to, to just understand this letter to the people who are Hebrews. These Jewish people who were being called into a, a new covenant, which he says is a better covenant. They were having all kinds of things being taken from them that were very painful and difficult. Think about it for a second. They're letting go of things that meant much to them in their worship. Ceremonial laws where we kind of go, well, that's not a good, you don't have to do that anymore. They meant much to them. They were losing a sacrificial system that had been good for 1,500 years. Think about this. They were losing a priesthood and they were losing a high priest. They were losing a temple. But they were called to a relationship with God that was much higher and better. And I remember I was just processing that and thinking of the pain. And it's painful, folks. It's painful to stretch. It's painful to, to move to places of flexibility. And as I was thinking about it, I looked in my closet. And here in my closet in the corner, I had some old shoes, which is a, kind of a thing that I do. When my shoes start getting old and I realize they look tattered, I still love wearing them. I, you know, they're, they're old, they look, but they're not looking too good. I go out and get new ones. I take the old ones and I put them in the corner just in case. And what I end up doing is I start wearing the new ones. And you know what? They don't feel comfortable at first. They're not real familiar to my feet. They're not, they're not what I li- really like. I really like those. If they just... And God's saying there's something new, there's something better. And over time, those which were new now become familiar. And they begin to become a part of my next experience. God does that with all of us. That's why he brings the younger and older together. Some of the stuff, some of the things that you sing, you go, I just, you know what, you know what, as, just like old shoes, as you begin to put yourself into it and in, in, in with your heart, you begin to start to find that you're stretching into it and you're becoming comfortable with it. And guess what? The next generation is going to have to let go of these shoes and put on new ones. I, uh, this last week, uh, a house full of energy. My wife's nephew and his wife came with what I call the three-by-threes. They are three little balls of energy under three feet tall. <laughs> the house was a mess. My schedule was disrupted. Food I had planned on eating was gone. Sleep I hoped to get is still lost. But my wife noted to me as we were talking after this, you know, Kevin, it's only been a few years that we've been empty nesters. And can, can you just see how quickly we've become accustomed to our comfort? I tell you, having those little kids around, 
are good. It's great. It's good to sacrifice. It's good to be present with that kind of energy. Because God is about enlarging our hearts and making us more full. It's about what he wants to do in us. And so I just want to challenge us with this multi-generational, relevantly engaged piece. I'm just touching on it, but I want you to know that it is so important for the body of Christ, not today, but every day, that we begin to learn how to do that. And the greatest thing about it, the tension puts us in relationship with one another. If we'll do it in not passive-aggressive ways, not in attacking ways, but we do it in grace, we are, in a sense, this corral of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and we work together through this process. And there's another tension, loving God and loving others. It's easy to love God, but it's difficult to love others. Jesus observed this throughout his ministry. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. A few weeks ago, I, met, I, I, I was given a World Magazine article. World Magazine is a really conservative Christian magazine. And on it was a, a story, and in it was a story of Billy Graham's grandson, Tullian Chavidian, who's down in the area where I served down as executive pastor. And it was titled A Rebel Pursued, and the byline reads, The saved inside the church need the gospel as much as the unsaved outside the church. He actually took Coral Ridge Kennedy's church with his church, which had been planted, and they brought them together. And he said, you know, it went well for a couple of weeks, for maybe a month or two, and then everything broke loose. As God began to bring this group together, He says, you know, the interviewer says, you know, you understand the younger brother very well, having lived that way, but you found yourself in a church that you felt was more like the older brother. And he he, he mentions this. They had been, um, he says very much so, this group had been hearing so long what was wrong with the world out there, liberal Democrats, abortionists, homosexuals, idolatry outside the church, clearly defined idolatry inside the church overlooked. And the interviewer said, we have to confront our own idolatry. Tullian the grandson of Billy Graham says, if we don't, we have a declining, unhealthy church. Calvin, he goes back to Calvin because he's a real reformist. This is a paraphrase. The human heart is an idol-making factory, making the good things of God into the ultimate, defining things that we worship. I knew that that message had to go forth. We could not be for our city what we needed to be if we did not first grasp the gospel deep in our bones. Loving God and loving others that we don't like is hard. You know, we, we, we won't say we hate them because they learned in Sunday school a lot of us that you don't do that. You just dislike them a lot. Right? Well, I asked, um, this is going to put Christy Peel on the edge in one sense, but I asked Christy if she'd just come and share an experience she had because we have preconceived ideas all the times. And, and again, I'm, when, in saying things, it's not that we agree, but we are called to love. So, Christy, why don't you share... What happened recently? Good morning, everyone. As you said, this isn't easy for me to share, and you'll see why. Um, for 12 years, I was a TV reporter, and during that time, I'd interviewed people of many races, nationalities, covered the stories of many different types of people in many different cities and states and even countries. I really considered myself a non-biased, non-judgmental person. After all, I'm accepting. I have friends, different colors, ages, sizes, and orientations. This past spring, our Sunday school class, the second hour elective, was doing a study called Urban Entry. One of the lessons was about understanding and reaching out to different people groups and immigrants. During our discussion about immigration and people of various faiths, 
it hit me. I had a hidden prejudice, one I wasn't even aware of. I realized my attitudes and perceptions about Muslims were not correct. While talking with someone of a Muslim faith, I would smile on the outside, but on the inside I was skeptical and would keep a guard up. I had allowed the radicalism of a few people to sway my view of all Muslims. God revealed to me during that class that this wasn't fair. And I certainly wouldn't want to be lumped into the category, a Christian classification with people who kill abortion doctors. Awareness is the first step to acceptance, so I decided to be more aware of my Muslim issues and my attitudes. That was a deal I made with God, and funny how he works. A couple days after our class, I read an article in the Star Tribune about Tiza. It's a public charter school with a primarily Muslim student body. The school has legitimate legal troubles and is now technically closed, but this happened several months ago, and at the time, the school was very much open. For years, the school had come under fire, and it received hate mail from many groups every week. Many of the groups who were sending the mails and threats were from Christian groups. I did some searching and found that people criticizing the school were writing things that were based on ignorance, hate, and fear. One person suggested the physical education program was to prepare the children for jihad. So for the next part of the story, I have to go back, a little background for you. A year ago, after taking Jay Lakin's Dignity Serves class here at Wyzetta Free, I was inspired to launch a business called Media Minefield. I now teach nonprofit organizations how to use the media and how to effectively communicate their messages. On the website for my business, I have a blog where I write about different media issues. Back to Tiza. It was well known to local journalists when I was here at KSCP that this was a difficult place to get inside, fueled by a code of silence on the part of the teachers because the executive director didn't want the media inside. So following the Star Tribune article and my research, I wrote a blog and put it on my website. I challenged the school to let the media inside to see what was really going on. As long as cameras weren't allowed to fully document what was happening in the school, people would continue to fear and possibly misjudge it. MinPost.com, an online news source, picked up my post and published it the next day. Then I got an email from the school's executive director from TISA inviting me to come to the school and accept my own challenge. After all, I said, let the media in, and he said, all right, you start. So he invited me in, and of course, I had to go, and I wanted to go right away, partially because I didn't know how long I could be brave. (laughs) And let me tell you, when I walked into that school, I was on full alert for prayer math, Islamic symbols, all these things I'd heard online that were happening in these schools. Now, I didn't see any of that. I was embarrassed immediately of my misconceptions. I learned after spending some time with the executive director that many of the school's teachers are Christians, and Bethel College, where I went to school, Bethel University now, sends student teachers to TISA to observe the teaching techniques. Through this experience, I learned to open my heart and listen, to analyze deeply what it really means to love thy neighbor, to be aware of how God is at work, who he places in my path, and how I should respond. Loving God can sometimes be easy, but loving someone else that we just don't like is really hard. But we're called to do that, and we're going to be a church that holds firmly to the Word of God and the gospel message, but we're going to love people. We're going to love people.
And then the last thing I just want to talk about is attention. These are all good tensions. The last is what I call from just filling a sheet of paper to really full participation. There will always be attention from being words on a wall to becoming a way of life. Most visions never leave paper. And this vision isn't going to lead paper unless there's a lot of prayer. And there's been prayer every Wednesday, every Wednesday, first Wednesday of the month. You can come and pray. We believe there's groups that pray. There's people who pray at 830 before these services. But it's not going to be just prayer. It's going to be because you have chosen to say, I'm going to be a participant. I'm going to get on board. I'm going to move into this and I'm going to ask God to begin to do the stretching in my heart that needs to be done. For our vision to be fulfilled, the decisions we make today are critical. And what I really think is, is really cool, it, it's going to be happening by individuals who say, I'm going to get on board. Because one of the things that is most critical is that we see people's lives changed and come to know Jesus in such a way that Jesus changed their life. So I've asked one other person, and I've got to tell you, it wasn't easy to get Zach to do this. But Zach um, is not a public speaker, but he said he'd come up and he'd share his story of how God had worked in his life. And so, Zach, I'm going to stand here with you. All right. Uh, I'm Zach Bakula. And, uh, yeah, uh, obviously public speaking has never been done for me. So um, when Kevin asked me if I would share my story, I was honored and surprised. Um, I never thought that my life would be worthy enough to be asked to share with anyone else. Um, I didn't think it was worthy because I'm not good at sports and, I'm not educated enough to be a big shot at a large company. I'm not rich enough to throw money around and draw attention to myself. And I'm not charismatic enough to be a movie star. All the disclaimers are gone now. (laughs) Uh, To me, those are the types of people that others listen to. Uh, I've always considered my, my life just to be average and never really good enough to make a difference. And I think that says a lot about my mindset until recently. I was never brought up in a church. My dad came from a strict Catholic family, and my mom was raised a strict Southern Baptist. They both enlisted in the Air Force as soon as they could, and they met at an Air Force base in Kansas where they were married five months later. Uh, I'm the youngest of three kids that they had. The three of us were baptized at the Air Force base, and that was pretty much the extent of any interaction we had with religion. We moved to Minnesota when I was about two years old, And uh, I do remember going to church once about the age of six, and that was about all that we ever did. Uh, We were never read Bible stories, and I don't think we even had a Bible in the house. Uh, In my teen years, only one of my friends went to church, and we would tease them sometimes about having to get up early on Sundays, but that was about all we ever talked about. I think the only time we ever believed in God was when we were hiding in a closet and praying not to get caught for what we had done. We were praying how we would be such good people if we just didn't get in trouble that one day. And, of course, after that day, we never changed anything. After my teen years, the only interaction I had with religion was during family get-togethers. I'd hear some of my family talk about how God was great. They would talk about how they have changed so much since they started into church. I could never listen to much of that because all I heard were former drug addicts, alcoholics, cheaters, and liars. Plus, let's not forget that Many of them had unwed kids by many different people. Now, just because they go to church, I'm supposed to believe that they're better people. I'm supposed to believe that people like them could be accepted by God. I didn't see how that was. These people are not what I thought of as worthy of God. I believe that it was all a scam and more of a crutch for people. I believe that people would use religion just so they can sound better than others. 
and I continue to have this feeling for many years. At the age of 23, I was blessed enough to get married and have a son. Uh, My wife already had two kids, so I became a husband and a father of three all at once. I left all things religious up to my wife, who had grown up a Christian. I knew we had to get him baptized, because that's just what you do to kids. And again, the baptism was the only time I went to church for a few years. When my son was around three years old, I started reading to him from a kid's Bible that we got from a gift from my mother and father-in-law. They were the only ones who were still involved in a church. They would even pick up our kids and take them to church while we would just sit at home. Looking back, I can't believe how bad that was, telling the kids to go have fun and learn about God while we just stayed at home. I was pretty embarrassed when they would come home and know more about God and Jesus than I did. I also felt embarrassed to be using a kid's Bible as a learning tool for me when I was reading it to them. So I said, that was it. I'm going to be a Christian, too. And I went to church on Sundays, and I sat and listened. I couldn't believe how easy it was to be a Christian. I just showed up for an hour a week. (laughs) I thought I could do that. I'd sit there and walk out not remembering anything that was said, and after a couple months, I stopped going to church altogether. After that time, I continued to live my life the way I wanted. I didn't have anyone to answer to. I was a grown adult. I lived a pretty selfish life, but at that time, I never thought it was. I never had time or money to help out others. I was a busy person, and I needed that money to buy the next cool toy to impress other people. I wanted to make sure my kids had the newest toys, too, so they would know I loved them. Yes, I was a very hands-on parent, too, but it was better when I could just give them what they wanted or what I wanted them to have. I also wanted my wife to have the nicest vehicle when she was driving the kids around. This is what I focus a lot on, just material things to fill up my life. My life still seems so bland, though. I never really was excited during the day-to-day stuff. I was always missing something. During this time, the stress of slowing work, less income, and more arguments at home was really taking its toll on me. Both my wife and I had changed into different people now. We weren't on the same page and sometimes not even on the same team anymore. We started having a lot of ups and downs and life was getting harder. I never believed I had anyone to talk to about all this things running around in my head. I never believed I had someone to give me advice or to help take some of the pressure off me. Instead of ever knowing God and using his power for help, I held it all in. But hey, if there's one thing to make life easier, it's a new baby, right? That's what we did, and I had my second son in 2009. Uh, During the pregnancy, there were times we had talked about separating because things just weren't working. We stuck it out, and after he was born, we did okay for a while. Towards the end of that year, I finally did say I wanted a divorce. Things had become too bad to go on the way they were. The marriage counselor we were seeing at the time suggested a trial break. It was supposed to be for a couple weeks and ended up lasting three months. During this time, I felt so good to be in control of myself again, not having anyone to answer to. I was still coming to the house almost every day to play with the kids, but I was able to leave and go do whatever selfish things I wanted to afterwards. I was holding on to so much anger and resentment that it felt so good to be away. I held on to all the anger that I had built up throughout our marriage, and I was letting it control so many of my actions. I didn't know there was anyone who could take your pain and anger from you so you can live a happier life. I mean, really, who would want to have that job? Who would be strong enough to handle all these problems plus more? Well, I did start to find out very soon. After those three months, 
uh, in the spring of last year, I was talked into coming here to Wyzetta Free for some of their counseling services. I almost had to be pulled in here because as a non-believer, I felt this wasn't neutral ground for me. Uh, I believe the people here would be judging me right away because of my beliefs or lack of beliefs. And even though the counselors made it obvious that they weren't judging me based on that, I still didn't say more than a few words during that appointment. I don't know exactly what it was that made me agree to go back for more appointments, but I did. I still refused on some days, but soon I was looking forward to going in. And it was weird because even as I was being shown some of my faults, I started to feel better about myself. During that summer, I was pretty happy to see the changes in myself and was also looking forward to when the counselors would tell me that they could notice a change. It never crossed my mind during any of this time to actually go to the church services, though. Unfortunately, last September, I was abruptly done working. Now, as I was healing my mind, my body decided it needed a break, and I hurt my back at work and could hardly walk. Now my mind started racing around, saying, what are you going to do now? You're the sole income provider for your family. Your marriage still isn't fixed, and now you might not ever be able to do the same job. The negativity was creeping in closer every day, threatening to destroy the progress I had made. Then one day it just popped into my head that I should actually go to one of the services at the church. I don't know what it was that told me to go, but it was clear as day and really left me no other choice. So that Sunday in November, I went to my first service here at Wyzetta Free. I hid in the back, as I still do, trying not to draw attention to myself. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, I looked at the Bible, and it took about ten minutes just for me to find the chapter that Kevin was going to be talking about. (laughs) This was my first time ever reading out of a Bible that didn't have cartoon pictures. (laughs) I felt like such an outsider, like everyone could tell I had no idea what was going on. And then Kevin began to speak, and it was like everything he was saying was directed right at me. It's impossible, though, because I had not actually met him yet. I was just kind of mesmerized during that whole service. I had no idea what was going on anymore. I started to get goosebumps all over and actually found myself starting to tear up. On my way home, I was trying to figure out what had happened, and I had no explanation. I finally gave up on trying to figure it out and just accepted that, by coincidence, that service had really touched me. I met with my counselors that week and told them that I had gone to the service. I was surprised to see them so happy to hear it. They had never pushed for me to go to church, and in fact, have never really brought it up before. Why were they so happy for me? Unless they already knew something about church that I didn't. (laughs) Well, I thought I would go the next Sunday, too, just to put my mind at rest that the first service was just a coincidence and nothing more. Once again, though, Kevin somehow found another sermon to write just to me. And I sat there thinking, come on, now this is getting crazy. In fact, I was recently going to write Kevin and tell him that after attending here for nine months now, he should probably stop writing all of his sermons just to me. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's how I felt since coming here. Every Sunday it feels like a private lesson just for me to learn from. So I finally had to meet this pastor who was always in my head, so I set up a meeting. I didn't know what to expect during the meeting and was pretty shocked when we did meet. This guy was telling me that Jesus died for all our sins, even mine. He's telling me that the love from God is a gift to us, not something we have to earn. He's telling me that it's not about doing deeds in order to be better than others. This is about having even the smallest amount of faith in God and trusting in him. We have the opportunity for many gifts if we have faith. God will accept us with all our flaws, 
God loves us no matter what. It was on that day, January 18th, 2011, that I accepted God into my life as my one and only. I again had to fight off the tears after we were done because I was flooded with emotions. I had so many things rushing through my head. It felt like a huge weight had been lifted off me and that everything was so much brighter. I left the church the happiest I'd been in a long time. I don't have to do anything on my own anymore. I have someone who can help carry my problems, and I have someone I can ask for advice. I also have someone that I must answer to. This is all what I've been looking for my entire life, and now I have it, and to think this was all a gift. From that day on, I felt a renewed energy for everything in my life. I'm trying to make sure that I'm always pushing myself to be the best person I can be. I started looking at my life in a more positive way. Instead of sticking around the house because of my back injury, I was able to go on school field trips with my son who had started kindergarten. I was volunteering in his class for parties and I would go to my stepkids' school events. These are all things I never would have been able to do if I was still working. So even though I was going through physical therapy and the pain associated with it, I was so happy to have this time to be there for my kids. And as the physical therapy drug on and the pain never subsided, I was still able to maintain a positive outlook. Even though my doctor told me that I probably will need to find a new career, I saw a positive side. I never had the chance to go to college when I was done with high school, and now I have that opportunity. I talked about going back to school as construction slowed down, but I could never find a way to find or to pay the family bills while I was going to school full time. And now someone else had found a way for me to do this. It's almost like someone set this all up for me. Again, there was too much happening to believe this all just fell into place without some kind of help. I believe this is all part of God's plan for me. I'd been going to church for a while and still had the hunger to learn more. I was directed towards Carol Miller, whom I started meeting with. I was so excited to actually start to learn more about Christianity. During the very first lesson I worked on, I again was amazed at how it seemed written just to help me. And eventually I outgrew my kids' Bibles, so I had to go out and buy my own, which I never thought I would do. I would sit and spend hours just looking through it and following some of the stories. As Easter approached, I heard some of the people were going to take part in a fast. Right away I heard myself saying that I was going to give it a try. I still don't know what made me want to take part, but I'm happy I did. The fast seemed to be at the perfect time for me because things had been rocky at home again. And even as I was on my new road of being a more faithful follower, there were times when I was even criticized for my previous beliefs on religion. I was called a hypocrite, and I was more than happy to admit that I was wrong. I admitted that I never even knew what it meant to have a relationship with God. I admitted that I never had the right to judge others about their relationships with God. During the fast, things really seemed to slow down for me. And that alone would have been great for someone like me whose mind is always going 100 miles an hour. During the evening of the second day of the fast, I retreated out to my garage for some time to think. And it was out there that I actually found myself talking out loud to God. I had never done that before, but as I was working out there, I found myself just rambling on to him. I remember telling him that I knew he was testing me with all this stuff in my life right now and that I wasn't going to give up. My overall fasting experience was just one of being able to slow down. I never took time to slow down and just talk to God about what was going on in my life. I believe that's what he was showing me to do during this time. 
I was lucky enough to change my direction and head in the right way, but not until after I also made a lot of mistakes. For some, fully committing to taking that first step is the hard part, and for others, the first step is easy, but it's staying on the path that's the problem. We all have our strengths and our weaknesses. I think the key is to utilize our strengths and to ask for God's help with our weaknesses. I'm amazed at how God will show me that he's still watching over me when I'm feeling weak. I was feeling so worn down about my situation after Easter that I didn't know what to do anymore. I escaped back out to the garage, as I often did after the kids went to sleep and started cleaning up more stuff. I had been redoing my garage since winter and was almost done. One thing I had left to do was to clean out and put away a file cabinet that was given to me. Uh, It came from my grandparents' house after my grandpa had passed away. The file cabinet had sat through a garage sale at my parents' house, and nobody wanted it. I saw that it was left, so I said I could use another one, and I brought it home. As I started to clean it out, I saw a lot of dirt in the bottom, so I flipped it over and dumped all that stuff on the ground. And two things caught my eye when I did that. The first was a receipt from a store up in Brainerd. Uh, My grandparents had lived up there for many years, and it brought back a lot of good memories from the times that I was up there. And the second thing really surprised me. It was a perfect four-leaf clover that was stuck between two pieces of clear tape. And I didn't know what to think. I'd always looked for a four-leaf clover as a kid, but of course I never found one. And now this one made it to me without being seen by anyone else or being sold at the garage sale. And I just stared, smiling at the four-leaf clover and couldn't help but hear my grandparents say that everything's going to be okay, just keep working on it. So that's what I've been doing. I just continue to work on being who God wants me to be. I know I still make mistakes, but I'm not going to stop trying. And I've been shown too many times that God is watching out for me and that he will lead me where I need to go. I just have to have faith. You know, I look out and there are, there are a few more stories like that that have happened over the last few months. God's at work. I'm going to ask you to stay standing because we're going to, we're going to close. We're going to take the offering, so ushers don't get worried. Okay. Um, let's just sing this to the Lord and as the offering is taken.